Good afternoon. I'm Maggie Ferguson. I'm the director of the Royal Society of Literature, and I just want to welcome you all here today and say how how thrilled we are uh, to be organising this event in association with the LSE Space for Thought Literary Festival. Um, it's the third year running that we've organised an event together, and it's a very happy partnership, which we hope will continue for many years to come. Uh, for any of you in the audience who aren't already members of the Royal Society of Literature, or I'm sure this is none of you, don't know about the Royal Society of Literature, uh, we would encourage you to pick up some information from our stand outside as you leave. We're based just down the road in Somerset House, and for a subscription of just £50 a year, or £30 if you're aged 24 or under, you get priority booking and free entry to uh, roughly 20 events a year. And just to whet your appetite, speakers we have coming up over the next few months include Tamima Anam, Karen Armstrong, Bidisha, Susanna Clapp, Richard Davenport-Hines, Philip Henscher, Hilary Mantel, Michael Ondaatje, Carol Phillips, Rose Tremaine, Sarah Wheeler, and Rowan Williams. Uh, members also receive our annual magazine RSL Review, and the new issue of that was published last week, and copies are on sale outside. Or if you sign up for membership today, of course, you'll get a free copy. The issue will be of particular interest to the audience here as it includes a conversation between Claire Tomalin and Victoria Glendinning on the art of biography. Uh, Claire and John, in a minute, will talk uh, together about Dickens until roughly 20 past one, and will then take questions for about 25 minutes. Um, there won't be a chance to get books signed, but Claire and John have both already signed copies of their books, and they're on sale outside after the event. Uh, also on sale are six very beautiful editions of Dickens published by the Folio Society to mark the bicentenary. Uh, this is the first time the Folio Society has been involved with the LSE Space for Thought Festival, and in recognition of this, they are offering a 10% discount on books and a discount on all those wishing to take up membership of the Folio Society. They have a stand outside as well. In just a minute, I will hand over to John Carey, who will introduce Claire Tomalin. But first, just a very few words about John, whom, as all of you here will know, has been a titanic figure in the world of British literature for several decades. It would take far too long to give a full list of the books John has published and edited, but just to give you a taste of their range, they include the Faber Book of Science, the Faber Book of Utopias, studies of Milton, Thackeray, John Donne and Dickens, a biography of William Golding, the intellectuals and the masses, and what, a, what good are the arts. John is Emeritus Professor of English Literature at Oxford University. He's twice chaired the judges for the Booker Prize, and he chaired the panel for the first International Booker Prize in 2005. He appears regularly on radio and television, on programs like Saturday Review and Newsnight Review, and for many years now he's been the chief book reviewer for the Sunday Times. It was through the Sunday Times that John first met Claire back in the 19, early 1980s when Claire was the books editor there. And he sent me yesterday this tiny glimpse of the beginnings of their friendship. It was pre-email, he wrote, and you couldn't trust the post. So I used to take my copy down by train from Oxford and hand it in to Claire at the Sunday Times Gray's Inn Road office. I'd hang around until she'd read it, very tense, seeing if she liked it or not. 
hard to make her laugh, but I used to try. Thank you, Maggie. Can everyone hear if I talk like this at the back? Fine. Well, Maggie, thank you very much, and that's a perfectly accurate account of Could I just put in a tiny (laughs) codicil to that? I remember you used to bring your absolutely adorable sons with you occasionally. And one day, your younger son took me aside. He was very small. I took my hand and he said, my daddy beats me. A child on whom no finger had ever been laid (laughs) has continued in the same vein. He's now a lawyer. (laughs) Well, I'm not going to spend much time introducing Claire because she will be well known, I'm sure, to many of you. And most of you, I expect, have read the book. And if you haven't, you should hasten to it. It is a wonderful biography, wonderful. And Claire brings to it what I feel she always brings to her writing, which is a real human interest in everyone that she writes about, even the nasties and the villains. I mean, she tries to understand people. Quite rare in a biography. She never takes against, even poor old Dickens, so you take against him at the end, as it were. But, I mean, deeply, deeply sympathetic, (laughs) deeply sympathetic portrait. So what I... Claire's arguing already. (laughs) Um, What I wanted to start by asking you was this, that you've written, when you write about men, the men you've written about are peeps, wonderful, wonderful biography. Um, You would have thought you couldn't write a biography of Keats. What's the point? He's written about himself millions of words. Well, read Claire's. and, And you see why you need one. Peeps... Hardy and Dickens. Now, what I wanted to ask was, why those three? Um, have they anything in common that attracts you? And in particular, is it anything to do with their relations with their wives? No, it's nothing to do with their relation with their wives. They attract me because they were writers of greatness and genius, and their writing simply absorbed me, thrilled me, and um, in the case of Pepys, right, nine and a half, less than nine and a half years of diary, uh, an incomparable achievement, uh, a, a humanist achievement, presenting curiosity about himself, presenting himself to the world. This is amazing. And then he lived through the 17th century, which is the most interesting century that we have ever had because we threw out all the royals and the bishops and all that nonsense and unfortunately brought them back again. But, um, you know, that happened. It's amazing. Pete saw all that um, and lived right on in 1703. So to me, the, the attraction of, of studying that century and of studying Pepys and trying to, uh, trying to sort of see a bit how he worked, what had inspired him... Uh, that was Pepys. Hardy, great poet. I wrote about Hardy because I always thought uh, he's a wonderful novelist, but he is a 19th century novelist and he was a, a, a 20th century poet and a, and a great poet. Um, when I was speaking once about Hardy, somebody in the audience said she'd been told at university that it wasn't right to admire Hardy's poetry. 
This is academics, you know. They're always telling people that it's not right to admire things. Um, forgive me, not you, John, of course. But, but I, I've never forgotten that, um, that someone had told her she shouldn't admire Hardy's poetry. So I wanted to write about Hardy. And Dickens, I've read since I was a child, and uh, he, is a, he is a very, very great writer. And he had a, a very difficult, it was the most difficult book to write because his life is so complex. I, I better stop sort of chuntering on, sorry. So it's the way they write, yes. Well, that's, that's, what, that's what gets yeah, me in. I think I that's mean, the best you write reason. About, you write about men and women in mm. all your books, you know. Mm. Um, I did start uh, concentrating on women because I'm a feminist, but uh, there were lots of men in their lives. Mm. What do you say about getting rid of the flummery of titles and all that kind of thing? It's interesting because Dickens thought that very much, didn't he? I came across a quotation the other day, I can't remember it word for word, where he says, it's in Forster's life, I suppose, something like he looks forward to a time when, he will, when it will be a democratic, kingless nation. He was a, a Republican. Republican. Yeah, he was a Republican. Republican. And rid, he says, of the shackles of class rule. Yeah. Yes. Not much emphasis on that, actually, in the um, celebrations of the... Well, it always happens, you see, when Shelley, who was a Republican, is celebrated, we always get the... I mean, it's very touching that the royal family wishes to associate themselves with these things, and they do. Um, That's right. But it's always a bit peculiar. Yeah, and... and, and Rise like lions after slumber, who know, all that. At the royal wedding, a poem by Milton was set to music. (laughs) My God, (laughs) you know, the great Republican poet who defended the execution... Charles the First. Yes, and, and, and Dickens, Dickens went down to Bath uh, to celebrate uh, his friend Walter Savage Landor's 74th birthday, and it was the same day as the execution of Charles the First, and they drank, and they drank to that. 29th January. Yes, absolutely. Oh, yes. Very good. Yes. So, yes, okay. So, well, obviously, when you thought Dickens, you're going to write like Dickens, you must have thought about the previous biographies of Dickens that you had read. Which of, the one, which of them really earned your respect? Well, many. First and foremost, John Forster. John Forster was Dickens' closest friend, and Dickens, when he was still quite young, although he said, as many writers do, that he disapproved of biography, he actually invited Forster, quite cheekily, he wasn't yet 40, I think, <laughs> to become his biographer, and he trusted Forster with every, every secret in his life. And when uh, Dickens died, a Forster, who was not very well and who was absolutely heartbroken at the loss of this friend, <coughs> set to to write this biography in three volumes. And the Victorians were very good at biography. I mean, they left out, they had to be discreet. But it is one of the very great 19th century biographies. And uh, it is very just about Dickens' character. Of course, Forster knew things about Dickens that no one else knew at that time, so huge revelations about Dickens' childhood, nobody, the public did not know about the hardships of his childhood. Um, But he's not soft on Dickens, so that is a great biography, and um, I recommend it to everybody. It's a simply simply wonderful book. Um, But there are many other people, and some sort of slightly disguised uh, biography, when biography wasn't very fashionable. Philip Collins, who was a a wonderful uh, Dickens scholar, um, he, he wrote a book called Dickens and Crime and Dickens and Education and he, wrote a, he collected interviews and recollections one of those very useful volumes in which 
somebody has gone through so much material. So Philip Collins is very, very important figure to me. Um, Chesterton, uh, D.K. Chesterton, whose uncle ran, was a friend of Dickens, he ran the Tothill Fields prison. Um, Chesterton is full of, full of wisdom and insight and also Gissing of that period. Gissing's book is a critical study, but it has marvellous, marvellous things to say about Dickens. Um, I think it would be tactless to come too far forward. Robert Patton, uh, a, an American scholar, Dickens and his publishers, is a book that I, I turn to almost daily when I was working on Dickens because it's so full of fascinating information about Dickens' very complex relationship with his publishers. And of course, you know, Michael Slater's book is indispensable. It has absolutely all the facts you could possibly want to know in it. Mm. Um, the, di- those two books that Claire mentioned by Philip Collins, particularly Dickens and Crime and Dickens and Education, are marvelous. Aren't they? Before most people took Dickens seriously, astonishingly informative, brilliantly incisive. Yeah, they really are worth looking at. I mean, out of print, I suppose you get them. Um, second hand, but uh, they are wonderful. Well, he, he gave me a paperback of, of really? one of them, yes, really? but I knew him, I revered yeah. him, yes. Yeah, he was wonderful. He said that, that when he started writing about Dickens, Dickens was not at all fashionable in the universities, and when the first time he went to Cambridge to do a talk about Dickens, he said nobody came to it. <laughs> well, the Leavises had said that, he was well, just a popular entertainer. That's right, yes. Yeah. Um, I can see why Falster was interested in Dickens. I mean, who wouldn't be? But I've often wondered quite why Dickens was interested in Falster, to tell you the truth. Why, why was he so attracted? I mean, you say in your book, don't you? I mean, something like it was almost an erotic. You know, it wasn't an erotic attraction. It was but it was like the passion. Was, well, we probably all had this. When young, you meet a perfect friend. You fall into the arms of a perfect friend. Never mind. What was perfect which, about which, him? He was about stuffy, wasn't he? No, he wasn't at all stuffy. I mean, like, he was born, 1812, like he was born in Newcastle and a poor, poor background, like Dickens. His, Went to Cambridge. His father. His father his, wait a minute. His father. <laughs> his, his father was a butcher, and one thing Dickens liked was his uncle had paid for him to go to the grammar school, so he had a really good education, which Dickens did not yeah. have. Dickens hardly yeah. had any education at all, so he had that. Um, his uncle then said, "All right, you can go to Cambridge." He went to Cambridge, turned his back on Cambridge immediately because Cambridge was posh, and you couldn't get a degree unless you were Church of England. And he really wanted to come to London and be a literary man. And that's what he did. He came to London and he started doing journalism, reviews, and he was interested in history. He wrote (laughs) books about the Commonwealth. He was also very, very radical left-wing. And uh, he had lots of friends. And they met when he wrote an unfavorable review of uh, an operetta for which Dickens had written libretto. And Dickens laughed when he read the funny bad review. And they they just immediately saw they were meant for each other. And um, Forster saw that Dickens was a genius. I mean, he wrote a very good review of the later part of Pickwick Papers. And Dickens saw that Forster could help him. Dickens always quarreled with his publishers. Forster took over Mm -hmm. all that. Um, Forster read all the proofs with him and had a very, very good eye. And Forster gave Dickens advice about his work. And Forster became the family friend. Mrs. Dickens, Catherine, liked Forster. He was godfather to Mamie. You know, he went everywhere with them. He went, he and Dickens went walking together, went riding together. And Dickens wrote to Forster, this friendship is till death us do part. 
he used the words of the, pretty well of the marriage service and that was absolutely true and when, Dick, when Forster's brother died Dickens wrote I will be your brother mm. and um, and when uh, when uh, Dickens died although Forster by then uh, was, was married when Dickens's marriage broke up Forster actually married uh, a well educated widow but when Dickens died Forster said there will be no joy in life for me now absolutely no joy just duty and the duty was to write his life I, people like sneering at Forster. He got fat and out of breath, and uh, he turned slightly, he was slightly less radical as he got older, and he and Dickens sort of fell out a bit about that. But when Forster was ill, for instance, Dickens went round with a copy of She Stoops to Conquer and sat by his bed and read the whole of She Stoops to Conquer, which is a very funny, very witty play. You may have seen it. Uh, and, they, and by the end of the evening, they both laughed so much that Forster was almost better... Um, and I think, you know, that's, it's that sort of friendship. That's a lovely story, yeah. Do, do you think that Forster was Podsnap? Yeah. Well, I think, like all novelists, uh, Dickens took, took little bits mm. from his friends and characters, and everyone's always said he was Podsnap. But actually, Forster, for instance, didn't malign, as far as I know, uh, foreign people. I mean, it was Forster who went round... Paris with Dickens visiting French writers and seeing and enjoying Paris. Yeah. So I think Podsnap has some of the pomposity that no doubt developed in Forster. But Good. Let's go on to Dickens' parents and his childhood. You could say that we owe a lot to Dickens' parents because they were such bad parents, <laughs> don't you think? I mean, if he, hadn't, we all need to if be he hadn't been sent to the... Yes, that's right. If you've got a child who wants to be a writer, send him to the blacking factory <laughs> for... Well, for a time he doesn't know will ever end. You know, he actually turns out to be about 11 months, doesn't it? Age 12. Um, but he th could have been there forever. And Claire tells in her book the story of how his father, and a father's friend, Dilk, wasn't it? Um, because this poor Dickens little kid worked in the blacking factory and then was moved up to the sort of place where they did the p packing and was put in a window with another boy, Bob Fagin. And passers-by could come and look at these two little drudges putting labels on blacking pots. And there was his father and a father's friend looking in. God, amazing. Dilk gave him half a crown. Dilk gave him half a crown. Um, well, you know, it made him as a novelist, really, didn't he? Went back to that terrible, terrible time again and again in the novels. Um, and his mother was still surely what turned him against women and with very good reason because she, when his father eventually was ashamed got him away from Lamott's blacking factory wanted him sent back and he said, didn't he I never, I never will forget I, I never, never will, can yes, forget yes, he did so that made him to some extent made him a novelist I think one of the things that made him a novelist about that was that neither his father nor his mother ever mentioned it yes, to him. Totally. I think these secrets hanging in the air are very important. Mm. Like his mother's father, who also was employed by the Navy in payoffs like his father, uh, just about who, after whom Charles Dickens was named, he was Charles Barrow, um, he was found, about the time of Charles's birth, to have been embezzling for years. And... Um, and was about to be arrested and sort of pleaded, well, I had a lot of children and I couldn't quite cope. He was quite high up in the night of it. And he had to flee the country. And uh, Charles Dickens never met 
his, his grandfather, Charles Barrow. This, again, was never mentioned. I think this tells us a lot about how novelists' imaginations get mm. going. That the idea that there are these things which are there and are not there are very important. Let me speak up a little in defence of the parents. Elizabeth Dickens taught him to read and was thought by the servants to be a good mother. Uh, they had a very happy time, those five years in Kent, and uh, he was sent to a very good school at that, at that time. Made it all worse, of course, when he, he couldn't go on. Um, his father also uh, provided him with a great pile of books to read, so he learnt to read from his mother, and he had these wonderful books, 18th century novels, plays, essays, Raven Knight's fairy stories. Which they had to be sold. He had to take them, he had to, take them to the pawn shop later. Mm. Absolutely terrible. So it, it, his relations with his parents were very mixed, I think. Yes. I mean, when his father died, having been a terrible torment to him and forged his name on checks and behaved appallingly in many ways, uh, what happened was that Dickens wept bitterly, put his arms round his mother, and they wept in each other's arms. So it was a sort of mixed relationship, wasn't it? As most relationships between parents and children are. Yes. You made a very interesting point in the book, which I'd never seen made before, that his father was brought up in a family, crew family, wasn't it, yes. that were very close to men of letters and artists and politicians and so on. He was the son of the housekeeper. At least, you think he may have been... Um, I think he could have been the son of anyone yeah, in the yeah. house. Because the but those, anyway, all those, all those men were promiscuous. But he was very much... He was made much of, wasn't he? Seems and put, put on. And, and you trace to that John Dickens, the father's um, awful extravagance. I mean, he had a perfectly good salary, just overspent all the time. Hence, he ended up in a debtor's prison. Hence, Dickens became a novelist, as it were, because yes. that's why he went to the Blackfeet yes. factory. Um, that's, uh, that point about um, the, the, the father's early upbringing, was that something... I hadn't seen that made before, but that's... No, I, I, I hadn't seen it made either. I think it, it does help to explain his sense of entitlement. He called himself a gentleman. Mm -hmm. he, wasn't, you know, he was the, Officially, he was the son of a butler and a housekeeper. Mm -hmm. He wasn't a gentleman at all, but he announced himself as a gentleman when he put the birth of Charles Dickens in the newspaper. And he had, he had a wine uh, merchant, and he ran up a bill with the wine merchant, and he bought very expensive books that he couldn't afford. He obviously felt that something was due to him, um, and in a way, that gave him a strength. I mean, it also, it also undermined him and landed him up in frightful, endlessly escaping from, from creditors, endlessly running up debts. That's so right. he also gave Dickens uh, this, sort of, this terrible, hopeless, complicated childhood where they were always moving from one lodging to another and then uh, the disorder and I think one of the things that Dickens early decided uh, was he was not going to accept the disorder of his parents life I mean even in the blacking factory he had his little weekly money and he divided it into seven piles and made seven little packages so that he would get through the week and still have something to eat at the end of the week so unlike his father already at the age of 12 that wasn't it Yes, yes. And what do you say about um, his grief at his father's death, hugging the mother? That's true, and it, but that whole thing brings out two sides of Dickens. I mean, on the other hand, when his father, appallingly, started to send in to the publishers for money um, and run up dead, Dickens put into the newspaper a notice saying he would not be responsible for debts incurred by those bearing his name. That is, his father. <laughs> wonderful. Wonderful. Just what his father needed, as it were. 
and then put them in a cottage. Was it in Somerset or something? Exeter. Exeter. He took a cottage for them. He went down and a cottage for them. Perfect in every way, except they hated it, of course, and he wouldn't have stuck there for a week. I mean, tucked away in this country cottage. But he was very put out when they wouldn't stay there. And they drifted back to Lewisham. And then the wonderful... I adore John Dickens. He then wrote to Chapman and Hall, Dickens' publishers, and said... Here I am in Lewisham. I wonder if you would pay for me to have a season ticket on the boat into central London so that I can visit, now I'm a man of leisure, so that I could visit the museums and the galleries. <laughs> Imagine one of my relatives writing to my publisher asking for a season ticket. <laughs> but but that, what a character. I mean, half the time Dickens was saying he was a damnable rogue and all that, and then suddenly Dickens appoints him to work on the newspaper he was trying to run very briefly. Which he was good at. To be in charge of the reporters, a position of trust and requiring... And he was a huge success at that. And he couldn't have depicted... Dickens couldn't have written William Doyt without his father. William Doyt is his greatest. Or Mr. Micawber. I mean, that's the wonderful thing, that he uses his father... The, uh, mm. as a Micawber, mm. and then years later he uses him as Dorrit. Mm. Absolutely. Then another person who was very influential, I think, early on, well, as you show, was the f- first woman he fell in love with, Moira Beadnell, who was a banker's daughter. Well, not really a banker, he wasn't, a bank employee. Yes, he was a bank employee. Wasn't but they sought themselves above the Dickenses. Yes. And anyway, she was a bit older. And so he was completely unacceptable. And, his, and, and Mrs. Beadnell didn't even get his name right. She called him Mr. Dickin. Um, So she, yeah, she um, she jilted him, so to speak. She teased him, didn't she? Teased him and and eventually threw him over. And uh, later on, when, when, when she got in touch again, years later, he wrote a letter about the effect it had had on him, didn't he? For one thing, he said it had given him the determination to succeed. In all of the, his determination, he said, he traced to that hard-hearted little woman, you. And that he also traced to it what I think he called a habit of suppression. He couldn't show emotion. Even to his own children, except when they're very young. Love to his children, yes. So she's... She's crucial, do you think, Mariah? Well, I think she's quite crucial because I think, in a way, she's responsible for the marriage because, because Dickens had a bad time for three years with this very pretty, enchanting, teasing and finally jilting uh, adored girl. And when he met Catherine Hogarth, who was the eldest daughter of, of a nice Scottish gentleman, one-time lawyer, now musical journalist, um, she had pink cheeks, blue eyes, and she seemed very docile and very quiet. Uh, and he decided uh, he was in love with her. And I think what he was doing, he was putting order into his life. He wanted to have order after all the disorder of his, his growing up. And this was to be a docile, submissive wife who would be a wife in the bed, a wife at the breakfast table, a wife by the fire in the evening, a wife giving him three children, which is what he wanted, just three children. Halfway through the engagement to Catherine, she threw a little fit of, of teasing and he wrote her a most chilling letter, warning, saying there will be no second warning he says, <laughs> if, if she wonderful. does this again. And she never did. Absolutely wonderful. And then they get married. Uh, he's, he can afford it because he's got the commission for Pickwick Papers. He takes her to Kent for a week's honeymoon. He's writing Pickwick Papers. She's pregnant in the first month of the marriage, and she's pregnant more or less all the time afterwards. 
with one interesting gap when they go to America. I yeah, think. I noticed you and said well, that. Yes, yes, I think yes. that is because why on earth didn't Dickens find out about some form of birth control? It was I talked to a lot of uh, retired physicians yesterday, and they all confirmed that he could easily have got mm. advice in the nineteenth century. Oh, he had close friends who were doctors, hadn't yeah, he? Beard yes, and Ellison, yes, yeah. Yes. If he could have only have mesmerised Catherine not to become pregnant, that would have been, that would have been a terrific solution. He did once mesmerise Catherine by mistake, didn't he? Did, he, he did. As you know, Dickens yeah. is very interested in mesmerism, and he had this long a patient called Madame Delarue, who was the wife of a Swiss friend that they met met in Switzerland. Catherine was desperately jealous, wasn't she? With he, some reason. Yeah, yeah, would disappear absolutely. into Madame Delarue's bedroom in the middle of the night. Yeah, of the yeah, night. Yeah, yeah, and have to, she would be wound up in hysterical fall. Right, She's like sort right. of Freudian yeah, or yeah. Jungian. But Dickens himself. And he would unwind her very gently and gradually, and she loved it. Yes, she loved it. He believed he really was. I mean, it was pure, and that he was just being a... Do you think? I mean, I don't think he yes, would I admit think. it was erotic. But yes, was. Anyway, think. once, when he, w- he tried to cure Madame Delamere, even when she wasn't there, because you could send these sort of waves of <laughs> through the ether... They'd agreed that he would think of her at such, right. such a time, and she would be thinking... And they were on a coach, and next to him was Catherine. And Fred she went to sleep. She went into a mesmeric trance when he was actually <laughs> trying to mesmerise Madame Delamere in Switzerland, yeah. So, yeah, what you said about Catherine and the marriage, it's very interesting. I mean, that she, in a way you're saying he, he married Catherine on the rebound from Mariah. And I noticed in that in the Simon Callow book, um, he makes the point, Simon Callow's just, as you know, written a book um, about Dickens' sort of theatrical life, and he makes, the, he, he suggests that one reason why Dickens married Catherine was because there was an arrangement, which indeed you know, was, went into operation, that Catherine's young sister, Mary Hogarth, who's 16 yes. at the time, would be living with them. And now Dickens was clearly, in a way, desperately in love with Mary, not in an erotic way, at least, I mean, he, he, he said she was pure. And, and Mar- Mar- Mary died in his arms. Um, within about a year of their marrying, yes, Catherine and, and Dickens marrying, uh, quite suddenly, on they got back from the yes. theatre, and she went upstairs to bed and had a kind of attack, heart attack. She called out from her room. Called out. Dickens she went out. And I had always read that that event as that she died <coughs> almost at once. You can actually go to the Dickens house and stand in the room where she died. Very interesting. I mean, be alone there on a winter's day. Often happy. Um, but actually, Claire points out that she took quite a long time to die. She died the next afternoon. And I was going to ask you, A, whether you think there's anything in this idea that he married because he could be near Mary. I mean, she would be there as well. And B, whether any, with your talking to physicians and so on, whether any of them have suggested what what would you die of in that kind of way? What you? Well, I just I don't want to disagree with Simon, whom I respect and love, but I don't think it is established that she lived with them. She stayed with them. You know, she went after Charlie was born to the chambers and and was very helpful, and she went to stay with them uh, at Doughty Street. Uh, but I don't think she actually was sort of. It was agreed that this was to be a permanent 
a fixture. No. Uh, there were a lot of younger sisters, and Dickens, of course, loved families of sisters. I mean, think of Traddles in David Copperfield, who's Sophie, and all her yeah. sisters were put yeah. in cupboards all around the house, and he just adored having a house full of, full of sisters. And when Dickens fell in love with Ellen Turnham, she was the youngest of three sisters, and he loved, I mean, he had tremendously strong feelings about the other two sisters, too. So I think it was, in a way, it was quite common among Victorian men to have this, because there was a sort of superfluous supply of women, um, and very often they were sort of hanging around in their sister, and going, sometimes going on honeymoons with their sisters. And there was um, something about Diggins maybe which wanted to have both a woman whom he treated as a sexual partner, and more or less only that, really, Catherine, yes, yes, produced the children, yes, yes. and someone he could worship, because he did yes, worship. Yes, absolutely. He worshipped I mean, me. I think, I think the, the, with Dickens, the word sort of sexual hygiene comes into play, that he sort of felt that sex, you had to have sex. It was sort of thought it was absolutely necessary for uh, men to have sex. But, but I think you're absolutely right. Then you could have another ideal, pure... Uh, person there, and obviously that could work very well with Catherine and Mary, and then Catherine and Georgina later. Uh, about her death, I think posthumous diagnosis is almost impossible. I mean, mm -hmm. there are doctors who go in for it a great deal, um, but uh, I, of course it can never be, <laughs> it's very difficult to argue with. It does strike me there are a lot of weak hearts in, in, in the, the Hogarth, Hogarth family. family. And some of Dickens's children had weak hearts too. Quite a lot of them died rather younger than they would have expected them to die. Another brother, uh, another Hogarth, a Hogarth brother died in a few years after Mary Hogarth died. So maybe there was something in that family. Also, I mean, nowadays, I mean, she might have had, I suppose, a sudden infection of some kind, which nowadays would have got picked up. Yes. Uh, but I always think it must have been awful for her dying away with Dickens holding her very tightly in his arms. <laughs> and it's not what you really want when you're dying, is it? You'd quite like to be laid down on the bed. Uh, in a way, he never got over it. I mean, he went on dreaming about her, didn't he, yes, for a long, long time until he actually until he told, told Catherine. She told Catherine, <laughs> yeah, then he stopped. Yeah. 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 But he kept on thinking about her and worshipping her, wanting to be buried with her and so on. And when he went to the Niagara Falls on his first visit to America, he said, you're very funny about this, he said um, how he felt sure that Mary's spirit had often been there. Um, and you say, why should Mary's spirit be sort of visiting beauty spots and so on? Um, and that Dickens often had feeble fancies when he thought about religion. I, I wanted to defend him a bit. I mean, it was a very common notion, wasn't it, in Victorian England, that uh, the spirits, particularly of the young, um, were hanging around or, or in heaven or in some oh. way transformed to angels or certainly could... And flying the Atlantic too. Well, absolutely, <laughs> that's right. But, but more seriously, I mean, what do you think about Dickens and religion? Um, I noticed when I was... Uh, there's been a very good, um, as, you, as you were saying beforehand, um, new selected letters. and I went through it um, trying to pick out the ones that I remembered from the Pilgrim letters. I noticed how when he writes to his sons when they're going abroad, he says, say your prayers night and morning I always have done. How interesting. Um, he went through a sort of a stage when, when, when he was a kind, he sort of believed in Christ as man but not God. He was a Unitarian. He was a Unitarian. Well, Forster was too, wasn't yes, he? Yes, he was. 
But what do you think? I mean, is it that he, like most people, I suppose, was religious sometimes and not others? Or do you think there was a deeply religious sense in... I think Dickens was a Christian, there's no doubt. I think A, a Christmas Carol is a Christian story of redemption, of how it's possible yeah. to repent yeah. and be saved. Yeah. I mean, it's absolutely straightforward mm. uh, Christian message. And it's true, he told his sons that they should say their prayers. Um, I think he was a sort of... I like the story he wrote, this, he wrote The Life of Jesus for his children. Um, it's not a great piece of literature or a great piece of religious thinking. Um, I think the Sermon on the Mount the character of Jesus, he was that sort of Christian. He, I mean, very, very slight, but real um, feeling that these were important and mattered. He hardly went to church. I mean, people living around Gadshill said he, he didn't go to church then. He was not, he was not a churchgoer. Um, uh, he had his, his, I think one of the children, they forgot to have christened for a long time, but on the whole, they did christen the children. They went through the, the sort of hoops. Um, so I think he was like a lot of people today. We remember this uh, Richard Dawkins survey. I mean, a lot of people who regard themselves as Christians but don't really worry about doctrine and don't go to church. Um, the, the, the side of Christianity that emphasises, um, well, the sort of Sermon on the Mount thing, fits in with the emphasis you place in the book on how benevolent, so to speak, in a public-spirited way he was. And um, you use as a sort of example of that, and the thing that he put a great deal of effort and thought into was running this um, home for fallen women, or as they were called in Victorian times, called Urania Cottage. The money was put up by a banking heiress, Miss Bedeck Coots, who he got to know very well. Um, and he ran this home for what, about, I mean, 12 or 14 yes, yes, fallen women at a time, yes. the idea being you would redeem them, and they would then off go go to Australia and, and I don't find think you, sorry go on yes. and find husband some did yes but I don't think it was redeeming he was after I thought what was wonderful about Dickens I think Dickens was a great and a good man I have to say I think he was really a wonderful man um, he didn't want them to have religion pushed at them no. which is what they got in most of the Maudlin's places for prostitutes. He wanted them to be shown that you could have a nice time. They had little gardens, they had pretty clothes. He wanted they had them to books, have pianos. Music, they had and music. Miss Bedeck yes. wouldn't allow Well, pianos. it was too expensive. And I they had, uh, he wanted them to, to, to be shown. I mean, there's, there's one of the girls arriving, shown to the bedroom, burst into tears because she'd never in her life had a bed of her own it's before. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And actually, it's very touching. He mm. seemed to me to have been right. He knew a lot of them, it wouldn't work with a lot of them, a lot of them would hate it and would go away, and that was true. But as you say, some went to Canada, some went to Australia, some went to the Cape, and uh, of course it was a tiny number. But then how do you, how do you help people? You can't help everybody. Dickens was not a politician. He was doing what he could, and persistently he is benevolent. When a friend died leaving children, Dickens would immediately often he would form a committee to raise mm -hmm. money. Elton, the actor Ed Elton, died. He was drowned at sea, leaving seven children, um, and the mother was already dead. And Dickens worked out how much money would be needed for all those children to be brought up so that they could earn their own living. And he stayed in touch with them. for uh, 20 years later, he and Esther, the eldest, were still corresponding. He did it. He actually did it and over and over again. 
He did it when his, his friend um, Stone, Frank Stone, the artist, died. Dickens became like a father to the Stone children. Um, he raised money for the ragged schools where the yeah. street children of London uh, were given something. The children who were in, in and out of prison. They would say, I didn't come last week, sir, because I was in prison. They were, they were pickpockets. They were prostitutes. He raised money for the Mechanics Institute. He went round the industrial towns of England raising money for polytechnics and mechanics institutes. Education for working men and women, he said, so that they could have libraries. I hope the government is listening. So that they could have lectures, uh, so that they could have reading rooms. Uh, so that they could have some higher education, so that they could, they could have a chance in life, something they hadn't been given, really. And out of those mechanics institutes and polytechnics came very often what are now the great universities in the Midlands and the north of England. So, you know, what Dickens did was, right at the end of his life, the last trip he made, I think, was to Birmingham, again, raising money for the, the polytechnic there. Claire starts her biography with an anecdote about um, Dickens being on a um, jury at a coroner's inquest, 1840, um, and there was a skivvy, an uneducated... Uh, yeah, um, who had killed her newborn child, um, and who would very likely have been executed for murder. Um, and Dickens took the trouble, he, he was just a jury man, it was nothing to do with him really, took the trouble to get a lawyer to defend her, um, made sure that she, and she was taken back by the people who had employed her. Before, made, yes, yeah. not, not the one she, where she had the baby. Um, and, you know, in other words, when he was very busy, young man, working, running, writing two novels at the same time, uh, nevertheless took time to care for this woman who was nothing to him uh, except that she was weak and others were strong and he stood up for the weak. Yeah, it's terrific. And one, one of the things that struck me, which I hadn't realised until I was working on the book, was that he just moved into a very grand house in Devonshire Terrace, just south of Regent's Park. And, the, and he had to just walk along a few streets to the workhouse yeah. because the workhouse had been set up in the 18th century on empty land in North London. And that sense of the proximity mm. of riches and poverty was so striking in London at that time and that he just up the road where it was a prison too. Um, so he always lived with a sense of how, how mixed uh, London was. Mm. Let's change the subject for a moment from Dickens and benevolence and Christianity to Dickens and sex. Um, you say Dickens could not write about sex. Um, and I think you're, you're probably right about that, but I wonder whether it is the case that Dickens didn't write about sex simply because the morality of Victorian England wouldn't allow him to. And he does actually suggest this um, in a letter to Forster, I think it's a letter to Forster, where he's imagining someone who has said that kind of thing, that his own, that his heroes are unnaturally decent. And Dickens says, oh, my smooth friend, what a shining imposter you must think yourself, and so on and so on. Um, when, by not admitting that the reason that he doesn't write about young men as they really are, and young women as they really are, is because Victorian morality won't allow him to. Do you think that, or do you think there was something in him that made it impossible? 
I, know, I do think that Thackeray also complained about it, said it was impossible to yes. write about. I mean, at one point, of course, he did write about women, <laughs> young women as they really are. He w did find that possible. A little Emily, Nancy, um, uh, Nancy's prostitute, little Emily, he, he's, he's <laughs> extraordinary statement he makes about her, saying it might have been better if she'd drowned as a child rather than been seduced by a gentleman. Um, that was his own volunteered yeah. uh, statement. Um, I think it would have been impossible for him to write, and one of the things he envied the French, and he specifically says that the French writers had the freedom to write without hypocrisy, and he thought that was wonderful. But I think he did, he clearly does have a problem. Um, his friend, Macle the painter Maclise, complained about Dickens's fluttering little child heroines who have no character at all, I mean, little Emily, Florence Dombey, little Nell, one after another. Um, uh, Dickens seems to be more at ease describing uh, older and um, often grotesque and funny women, not all of them, Betsy Trotwood is a, a very decent character, but Mrs. Gamp, you know, the, mm -mm -mm. Uh, uh, and you do feel he has a problem in life too about uh, sex. Really, I mean, he, it it was <laughs> it was something he he had great difficulty with. I think what you said about the wife who is who is the sexual. I mean, you, you you're married for years to a woman who is your sexual partner, and gradually she becomes not attractive to you anymore. But she is still the person in the bed there in the ordered life. So the difficulty of then deciding to do something about that is absolutely enormous <coughs> and that accounts I think for a lot of Dickens' bad behaviour because he did behave badly. Yes. How could he get rid of this? How could he get rid of her? On the writing thing, writing about sex, yes. there's a bit in Hard Times, you're a bit hard on Hard Times, I don't like it very much, there's a bit in Hard Times when Louisa Gradgrind is looking out of the window at the at the chimneys of Coketown with her father. Her father has made her marry, is going to make her marry, Mr. Bounderby. Mr. Bounderby, for us, is a sort of comic character, always boasting about his poor Our upbringing, trial. which didn't exist at all. But of course, for Mr. Bounderby to Louisa, is a future husband, which is a horrifying thought. And she says to her father about the chimneys. So I think, like, um, look at the chimneys, father. By day, they're just smouldering. But at night, fire breaks out. And Dickens writes, Boundary replied, I do not see the application of that remark. I do not see it at all. To do him justice, says Dickens, he did not. You know, but we are meant to see what those phallic chimneys and fire breaking out and her thinking about. I mean, he is actually writing about sex there, isn't he? Well, possibly. <laughs> sure about phallic chimneys. He's certainly talking about feeling. And of course the reason Louisa marries Bounderby is because she adores her brother. Yeah. And that's, it's her love for her brother that makes her do that. Yeah. Um, and I suspect she knows nothing whatsoever about what marriage involves and she, uh, she has a, a horrible shock. I, I greatly admire Hard Times in many respects. I mean I think it has one of Dickens's most important statements which is circus keeper who says people must be amused. People must be amused. People yes, must be yes, amused. Yes, yes. This is almost the you know the text you could put up for Dickens. People must be amused. Um, it's a lovely bit too when a government inspector is inspecting the children in this poor school. Um, he's a man of facts. 
and he's complaining that you know there's been wallpaper manufacture with horses on it. I said, do you in real life see horses climbing up walls? <laughs> Dickens says, half the class said yes. <laughs> and then seeing that yes was the wrong answer, the other half said no as well. <laughs> Wonderful. Wonderful. Straight Wonderful. into a child's imagination. Yeah, now. terrific. Can Let's I just go back to sex for a moment? Certainly. Uh, I think, I think uh, in Our Mutual Friend, last finished novel, that there is some eroticism. Yeah. I think Lizzie Hexham, although we don't really see her inner life, but she is, she is perceived with a very erotic eye. Mm. And although Dickens has to reduce her lover to in, <laughs> a wreck before mm. he, they actually get married, that there is something there. More important, Bella Wilfer. Bella Wilfer yeah. is the yeah, yeah. North London girl. Yeah, you know? yeah, yeah. She's yeah. absolutely wonderful. And although we mostly see her flirting with her father, she really flirts. Mm. I mean, they mm. go on jaunts mm. together. It's and, lovely. Yeah, and she yeah. pins his, takes his ears, holds his head against the wall and covers his face with kisses. And uh, she winds her lovely curls round his neck. I mean, you can. It was much admired by the critics. This I reckon the critics were all middle-aged Victorian men, and the thought of this lovely girl with these kisses. And it is there it's is terrific. undoubtedly yeah. there is something erotic there. Do you think that that is the effect of Nelly on? Well, I or, hope so. Yeah, I, I hope so. Nelly did a mm. bit of that, or, mm. or maybe Katie, his daughter. Um, maybe. Too. I mean, uh, he obviously yeah. he, he, there's a wonderful description of him dancing with Katie when they had guests at Gad's Hill, and how not so long before he died, how wonderfully they danced together. Um, probably, you know, fathers and, fathers and daughters. Yes. Yes. I mean, Nelly was the same age as Mamie and Katie, so, you know, there were these lovely young women. Yes, um, yes. That's good. But I don't think he had a very, probably a very happy sexual life. We ought to go on to Nelly, didn't we, I think, because partly because you, you wrote... Um, a book which changed everyone's thinking about the relationship with Nelly and brought out far more than had, had been known before. Now, you, you think and, and say in the book that really had, had Nelly Ellen Turn been a naughty girl, it would have saved a lot of time and trouble. Uh, and, Dick, and, and really, um, uh, you, you imply, I mean, Dickens would have got what he wanted and that would have been that. By not being a naughty girl, by not giving way, um, she caused all the trouble. And I, 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 and and you also think that um, when he went out to Doncaster with Wilkie Collins, he expected that she would really become his mistress. Pretty I think well, he hoped for that. Hope, hoped it would. Um, and I just don't know. I just wonder whether you think it possible that Dickens's relationship with her was a kind of mixture of the Mary and the Catherine. That I mean, he want he wanted her to be pure, yet he wanted her sexually as well. And that when he writes so passionately and um, about defending himself and saying that she's as pure and good as his as his own dear daughters, you know, in public. Um, well, that was at the beginning when she still was. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> I think you're right. I, I accept your criticism. I think the remark about a naughty girl is probably not very well judged. Well, it might be right. Um, well, uh, I just don't know. I just think it's a terribly complicated situation. I think he sort of wanted to make himself pure, hence the dividing the bedroom. He wanted to sort of start again. Yes. Here was this princess he was going to win. He wanted to be a knight errant, yes, didn't he? Yes, he did. An awful he did. letter yes. he writes. But then, but then it seems 
clear that, that she did. I mean, the Turner family had, had a good think, and there was this wonderful man who was doing so much to help them, keeping them all and encouraging them all. And I think she undoubtedly, well, since Dickens's two most intelligent children said she was his mistress and there was a and child, a child. Absolutely. I, who are we to contradict them? Sure. There's no reason to contradict sure. them. So I think that happened. And, but then we also know that she said that she had feelings of remorse. And, and so what you can see, we have no letters, none of Dickens's letters to her, none of her letters to him. So it's hopeless, hopeless a complicated situation which we can't look into, we have to speculate. But you will find everything that can be known about it by reading Claire's book <laughs> on Made <Later> Turn, <laughs> if you haven't already. Great treat. We must stop, we've gone on. Um, and, and now we, we are going to ask you to ask some questions. And there, now there are roving microphones, so if you would like to ask a question. Do you want me to read? Oh, sorry, I'm so sorry, yes. You before you, before I, I'll finish what I'm saying, then Claire is going, I asked Claire to, if she would choose a piece to read, and I chose a piece you for chose her, piece which for I think is absolutely wonderful. <laughs> it's, from, it's from her introduction, but I'll just say, when, when, when question time comes in a minute, um, put up your hand, a roving mic will come, don't speak until it comes, because we shan't hear, and if possible, keep your questions brief, because I'm afraid we've taken up so much time. So yes, I, I chose a piece from the prologue, or preface, to Claire's book, which I think it gives a sense of the liveliness of Dickens, and what she captures so wonderfully is that liveliness in this piece, so please, yeah. I'll read as fast as I can. <laughs> Dickens was still a young man, this was 1840. His grammar could be shaky, his clothes too flamboyant. Geraniums and ringlets mocked Thackeray. His hospitality too splendid, his temper fierce, but his friends, mostly artists, writers and actors, loved him, and their love was reciprocated. When he went out of London in order to have peace to write, he would within days summon troops of friends to join him. He was a giver of celebratory parties, a player of charades, a dancer of quadrilles and Sir Roger de Coverley's. He suffered from terrible colds and made them into jokes, Bizary, bizary, he complained, or I have been crying all day, my nose is an inch shorter than it was last Tuesday from constant friction. He worked furiously fast to give himself free time. He lived hard and took hard exercise. His day began with a cold shower and he walked or rode every day if he could, arduous expeditions of 12, 15 or 20 miles out of town, oftening summoning a friend to go with him. He might be in his study from 10 at night until 1 in the morning, or up early to be at his desk by 8.30. Writing with a quill pen, he sharpened himself and favouring dark blue ink. He was taking French lessons from a serious teacher. He was also doing his best to help a poor carpenter with literary ambitions, reading what he had written and finding him work. He was an obsessive organiser of his surroundings, even rearranging the furniture in hotel rooms. He wrote to Catherine from a hotel in Bath, of course, I arranged both the rooms and my luggage before going to bed. <laughs> and from lodgings in Broadstairs to an old friend, the furniture in all the rooms has been entirely rearranged by the same extraordinary character he meant himself. He smoked cigars and often mentioned his wine dealers in letters and the brandy, gin, port, sherry, champagne, claret and sauternes delivered and enjoyed. And although he was very rarely the worst for drink, he sometimes confessed to feeling bad in the mornings after overindulging the night before. Raspberries were his favourite fruit, served without cream, and he was very fond of dates in boxes. He belonged to the Garrick Club and the Athenaeum, and he knew and frequented all the theatres in London, 
and could ask any of their managers for a box when he wanted one. Eating out, going to the theatre, adventuring through the rough areas of London with a friend or two were habitual ways of spending the evening. He also walked the streets by himself, observing and thinking. He was passionately interested in prisons and in asylums, the places where society's rejects are kept. Thank you. So, questions. One in the front, in the front row here. What happened after he died? Did the family receive royalties for the next fifty years, or the family? What happened after he died? The family received royalties, um, you know, from the publication of each book. So they slowly diminished, and by 1911, his granddaughters made an appeal to the nation. To, because they were penniless. People, writers, people think writers make a lot of money. Let me tell you, it's not true. <laughs> <laughs> yes, the uh, Americans contributed very, uh, very generously, and I think even the royal family contributed. Yes, yes. Questions? Over there, at the back, on the top. I happened to be in um, Sutherland's, the booksellers, this morning, and I noticed that the library of Charles Dickens was inherited by his son and then given to Sutherland's for sale. And uh, my question is, did he actually have time to read anything? I mean, he seemed to be doing so much. And there are about 1,100 volumes, I believe, in this library of his, and did you look at the list of books in his library and come to any conclusions about their influence on his life? Uh, well, it's a big subject. I don't know whether John would like to talk about it. Well, well, he was a great reader. I mean, he knew his Shakespeare when he was young from the theatre, and he went on reading Shakespeare all his life. He, he read a lot. He... Um, I know that there were no Jane Austens no Jane Austen. when he died, and yet Bentley was his publisher, and he asked Bentley uh, in the 30s to give him copies of everything he published. So he must have had those volumes that Bentley, and Bentley was the first publisher to republish Jane Austen. Um, uh, but obviously he didn't, like, he didn't like Jane Austen. I mean, it is a, a huge subject. When he was going to write A Tale of Two Cities, he got Carlyle to advise him on his historical reading. Sent out a cartload of books, yeah, That's Carlyle right, that's right. He read Mrs. Gaskell. He recognised George Eliot as a female writer when and she published first... published Yes. Uh, well, he, no, I don't think he did. He wanted to. Mrs. Gaskell. Oh, Mrs. Gaskell he published, yes. But I was, went on to George Eliot, yes. Um, he didn't read the Brontes. Uh, he... He read Pepys, and he loved Pepys. He read the early editions of the Pepys diaries. All the 18th century novels, All the, so yes, when he was a child. Yes, he read those as a child, and he read plays, of course, a great deal. Mm. Um, people criticised him for being lowbrow. Uh, I mean, intellectuals have always been rather rude about Dickens. Uh, well, uh, <laughs> long live the lowbrows, I, I would say. <laughs> what he read, he made use of. Another question? Here. In the middle of the third row. No, wait, please wait until the um, 
microphone comes. Thank you. Thank you. Could you tell us a bit about Dickens' relationship with America? Because even though he was a Republican, according to you say in your book that he had a, a very ambiguous relationship with America. Well, Dickens in America, well, I'll try and keep it short. He longed to go to America, and he went in 1842 for six months and went as a Democrat and a Republican and hoping to see the ideal society. Arrived in Boston, wonderful, started visiting the prisons and so on. And then he raised a question, which was the copyright law, which meant he was very popular in America. He got no royalties. And as soon as he raised this point in America, the American press turned against him. And gradually, this beautiful relationship with America turned extremely sour as Dickens traveled on, he celebrated in New York, went to Washington. So he was really angry about their refusal to listen to what he asked about copyright. He was absolutely revolted by what he saw of slavery, cut short his, tri his trip to the South because he couldn't bear the sight of slavery. The other thing he hated in America, I always hate talking about it, was the habit of spitting, which was apparently very, very common. Everybody spat everywhere, all over the floor, all over the carpet. And Dickens, so three things Dickens <laughs> really, and uh, he, he, he did his, he traveled widely um, uh, around as far west as he could and down the riverboats. But when he came back to England, he wrote, he used his notes, and he wrote what was seen by the Americans as a very hostile account of America. And so people began to attack him more. And then he was writing Martin Chuzzlewit. And he put in then even more uh, furiously, furious attacks on America. So th there was a lot of enmity. But then as the years went by, he, he, had, he, he always remained friends with his Boston friends, Longfellow, people like that. Um, when he went at, in the 60s to do a lecture tour, because he was such a celebrity, they wanted him. He had slightly better financial arrangements with publishers, still not getting royalties, but publishers would pay a lot to have the first go at printing his new work. And at the end of that tour, where he was quite a sick man, he had dinner with the American press, and he got up, he was in frightful pain, gout in his foot, and he said, I've written bad things about America, but England and America, we love each other, we are absolutely, we will never go to war together, we will always be friends. And in all future editions of my book on Notes on America and Martin Chuzzlewit, I wish this, what I'm saying now, to be printed at the end of the volume. And that is what happened. Mm. So um, that, that's a very short summary. That second trip was also very, of course, profitable and made a lot of money on it. Yeah, that. made a lot of money, um, yes. Just uh, free and on this row here. I think he said the, um, the emblem of America should not be the American eagle, but the American bat, which I think is quite a funny comment about him. Um, I, I, I take exception to uh, so your interpretation of Dickens as a Victorian, in, in the sense of Victorian being long, you know, blonde curls and this kind of thing. I think he was a Victorian, an emblem of Victorianism, but not in that sort of uh, passive, romantic sense, um, in the sort of sexual frenzied sense. There, there's a tremendous amount of sexuality and sexual frenzy in all of the novels. Those who are the passive characters are passive, but also in a kind of a, a nasty sexual way, kind of a, a way of abuse or misuse. Uh, so I see Dickens as an extremely sexual writer, whereas Thackeray is, to me, just the opposite. But Dickens is a very sexual author, I think. 
some of the scenes of women and the abuse of women are terrifying. A friend of mine, a director, the woman who directed Little Dorrit, said that Dickens is ferocious, absolutely ferocious. Do you, th do you think that um, Dickens then could have written Becky Sharp? But she's a very sexual character, wouldn't you say? Quite so. Ah, yes, Eisenstein was talking actually, wasn't What, what is your question? <laughs> Eisenstein was talking about montage, not about heroines. And so, another question? A little further on there. Um, how much did Dickens um, design his books to be read as books as we know them now, read in kind of one go? Or how much did he think about them as being read in instalments? I know a lot of them were, were published uh, as part pieces, really. Um, and did he, when he was doing the instalment publishing, did he plan the books out carefully beforehand, or did he just kind of write it as he went along? Well, they were all published in instalments. I think yes. Mm. I mean, my, um, my except uh, except Christmas Carol, it kept yes. the short. So my question is, how much did that affect what came out at the other end and what we read now? Because we don't read them in instalments. We you know try to sort of plow through them. I think it is amazing that those books which were written in such haste on yes. slips of paper and rushed to the. Printer. So they were on slips of paper. They weren't all plotted out beforehand. They were on slips of paper with right. a quill pen, and they went to the print. And really, those books which are now printed, as you say, we read them, they're classic English What is extraordinary is the speed at which they were written. Some he planned. Uh, as he got older, he made more notes uh, planning, but sometimes he got into real difficulties. At the end of Little Dorrit, he was in frightful trouble because he couldn't quite sort out what he was meant to do with the plot. And do you think that process of writing explains some of the perceived weaknesses of Dickens, as well as the strengths? I mean, I often find that Dickens is just superlative in small bits, but when you actually sit down to read a book from beginning to end, as you would a modern novel, it's actually quite hard work. Yes. Each time I reread a Dickens novel, I react differently to it. I mean, you can always find bad bits. You can always find weaknesses. Yes. You can always find bits of overwriting, bits where it goes into blank verse, things like that. But somehow, <laughs> the whole novel takes, if you let it take hold of you, Bleak House, Our Mutual Friend, Little Just Dorrit, David Copperfield, uh, it, is, it, is great, it is a great thing. Um, so I think, yes, we can acknowledge weaknesses, but they don't really matter very much, do they? I think not, but it's true that, of course, the Victorians had a lot more leisure than for reading than we do, because we've got many other distractions. But do you find that with, say, Great Expectations, is it, which is about short-term? That's, that's, Great Expectations is the one, one that I think is the exception, actually. Yeah. I mean, so I think that's just a marvellous... It feels like a very modern novel to me. That, right, that yeah. reads to me like much more like a, a 20th yeah. century novel than a 19th century novel. Um, and yeah. I don't know what happened there, why that was different. 
he made, made quite, had to run it very quickly. Yes, and he made and he del deliberately made it shorter yeah. uh, because it was going in yeah. his magazine weekly. But he um, he made quite a lot of notes for that and interesting notes yes. about the ages of the characters and also about the tides. Yes, when uh, Pip is taking Magwitch to the boat, he actually yeah, yeah, yeah. studied the tide tables. Good. Uh, another question. Um, My question is of a psychological nature. Uh, Dickens was such an, a wonderful humanitarian and so kind to so many people. And when I read how cruel he was to Catherine and to the children when they were divorced, it, um, it was... It was extraordinary, and it, was a, uh, it made me think, my question to you is, he was abandoned as a child. Do, do you think that that abandonment could have affected his, his psychology so that he could abandon his own family at a later time as an adult? Well, he wasn't abandoned. I mean, he had, for when his father was in prison, there was a brief period when he lived in lodgings, <coughs> and he would just visit his father on Sunday. But he wasn't, he, he may have felt... <laughs> understandably pretty lost but he wasn't actually abandoned as a child. I must correct you they were never divorced, there was no divorce from his wife um, and he didn't abandon his children he made arrangements uh, for some of them to go out to <laughs> very long, long distant parts of the empire which was very common of course uh, in, at that time uh, he had uh, he had difficulty with his children, with the, with the sons. It's true. Um, what his I bad meant. His bad behaviour to Catherine, I, I think, is pretty inexcusable. I don't think it's really explained. Uh, this is your question. I don't think it is explained by what happened to him as a child. I think it's explained by the fact that he was a famous man with a high reputation, who had promoted ideas of domestic life and uh, marital felicity and, and this sort of thing. And um, he had to somehow uh, <laughs> present himself to the public as being in the right over the separation from his wife. And I think from that flowed his bad behavior. I think that's right. Do you think it's possible that he, because he had a tough childhood, <laughs> he was less patient with his sons than he might have been. Actually, I think they were dreadful lot. They were hopeless at anything. Well, I mean, only one of them was anyone at anything at all. Um, and so no wonder he got sick of it. And there's a very funny bit when he, look, he looks around the table, doesn't he? He says what he sees is an incapacity for anything on every face. You know, I think... As they uh, come down the stairs and he can't remember how many more there are to come down. <laughs> Thank so, you. Another question? Given that you feel that uh, there were so many good biographies of Dickens that were written, uh, what led you to add to the canon? Did you have something that you felt needed to be said that hadn't been said up to this point? I thought there were quite a lot of things that needed to be said. One of them was to do justice to John Forster, and a very strong part of my book is uh, making that, the importance of that relationship clear. I thought um, to write about the, the home for prostitutes uh, was, had perhaps not been uh, fully done. Um, I wanted to write a, a short biography too. Um, I thought one that, I mean I know it is a bit of a, bit of a brick, but when it is in paperback it will be quite easy to 
around. It's much, much shorter. I mean, it's one-third the length of Peter Ackroyd's biography. One-third. I think it's fantastic. You've got so much into so short a space. And it's very good to have a short book. I think, you know, biographies are like portraits of people. Uh, nobody th thinks it's odd that there should be many portraits of a person mm, painted. Mm. Um, a, a biography is a, is a sort of a, the writer and the subject coming together, and people see different things. People interpret things in different ways. And also, he needs rewriting for each period, it seems to me. I mean, yours is, you're my Forster, but yours is utterly unlike Forster's life of Dickens, because there's so many things you can say which Forster didn't say, and know that Forster didn't know. So I do think he needs doing again and again. I think there are many Dickenses. No one could ever decide what colour his eyes were, could they? <laughs> Brown, blue, grey, and so on. No, and I think he's like that. I think he's an interpretable character. Heaven's alive. We must stop. It's, I'm afraid it's quarter two. I've been told by Maggie on no account must we go on after quarter. I'm awfully sorry. I was going to have a last question. I'm afraid we've had the last question. What I want to do is thank Claire very much for coming and give us such an interesting talk. Thank you. Thank you.